Welcome to the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. Today, we present an episode from our Patreon-only podcast, Secrets of the Mysterious Old Radio, featuring our discussion of The Diamond as Big as the Ritz from Escape, chosen by our patrons as the second best Patreon-only episode of 2021. Now, if you want to hear the best of 2021, our analysis of the infamous Snow Shadow area from Vanishing Point, please go to patreon.com slash themorals and become an official member of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. Membership privileges include bonus Patreon-only podcasts like Secrets of the Mysterious Old Radio and Cliffhangers of Doom, Zoom happy hours with your hosts and fellow patrons, official morals swag, invites to Joshua's Mysterious Old Book Club, and streaming access to our live performances. We love our Patreon community and think you will too. Happy New Year and on with the show. Secrets of the Mysterious Old Radio. A gorilla piloting our plane. We're being fattened up. Like I fattened up the pig. Mother, look here. Hmm. Near to this flower bed. No child could walk upright on feet but let these impressions. They're deformed. I shall travel with him, take him to the four corners of the earth. And show people how well my gorilla sealed. Welcome to Secrets of the Mysterious Old Radio, a monthly members-only podcast featuring oddities, tangents, and other indulgent selections from the golden and not-so-golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. If you're listening to this, it means you are a member in good standing of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. And this month, we thank you with The Diamond As Big As The Ritz from Escape. Escape premiered on CBS Radio July 7th, 1947, and ran through September 25th, 1954. Much like its sibling series, Suspense, the name of the series told listeners what to expect. Escape! While Suspense focused primarily on edge-of-your-seat thrillers, Escape told stories of adventures set in strange and exotic lands. In order to make the program's life-and-death situations and exotic locales more vital and tangible, Escape grounded its stories in realism. For the most part, the dialogue is naturalistic, and the emotions are relatable even when the stories revolve around extraordinary threats like abominable snowmen or an army of killer ants. In 1947, Radio Life magazine praised Escape for this quality, declaring these stories all possess many times the reality that most radio writing conveys. This wasn't always the case, though, particularly in the early days of Escape. One of these stylistic exceptions is the story you're about to hear, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, 
based on the short story of the same name by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It represents one of Escape's rare forays into satire and stands out as one of the program's most unconventional productions. Fitzgerald's original story was first published in the June 1922 issue of The Smart Set Magazine. Like most of his work, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz deals with issues of wealth, love, and disillusionment, but in a departure for Fitzgerald, these familiar themes are presented in the form of a dark comedy. When the editor of the Smart Set magazine asked Fitzgerald why he wrote the story in this way, Fitzgerald supposedly replied, For my own amusement. Fortunately, it amused more people than Fitzgerald. The story was presented three times by Escape and once by Orson Welles on the anthology series This Is My Best. It was later adapted for television in a 1955 episode of Craft Theater. And decades later, Jimmy Buffett transformed the story into a song for his 1995 album Barometer Soup. And now let's open the vault and listen to The Diamond As Big As The Ritz from Escape, first aired July 21st, 1947. Escape. Escape tonight to a fabulous world where there is a diamond as big as the Ritz. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations presents Escape, a new series of programs of which this, the third, is The Diamond as Big as the Ritz by F. Scott Fitzgerald, produced and directed by William N. Robeson. In a country as large as ours, there are many odd and wonderful corners hidden away. But none more fabulous and wonderful than the one conceived in the imagination of F. Scott Fitzgerald and located in the pages of his famous short story, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. It is described in the words of John Unger, 20 years old, impressionable, and quite willing to swear to the truth of this whole strange affair. I'd been going to the St. Midas Prep School for a couple of years, and this was my second summer vacation. I'd met this fellow, Percy Washington, during the winter and got to be pretty good friends with him. Only, I didn't know about his family or where he came from or anything like that. Of course, I knew he must be rich, because all the fellows at St. Midas come from wealthy families. So, when he invited me to spend the summer at his home out west someplace, well, that was okay by me. Well, we'd been on the train overnight when he first mentioned it. I don't even remember now what led up to it. We'd been talking about first one thing, then another... Exactly where is your home, Percy? I mean, you bought the train tickets and all. It's so... in Montana, sort of. Montana? Oh, yes. It's a pretty wild country, isn't it? Mm, some of it is. Now, you take Hades, Missouri, where I come from. It's been settled for 150 years. One of the first towns on the Mississippi River. Indeed. Oh, sure. That's very interesting. Well, I sure do appreciate you not making jokes about it. You know, the way some of the fellas do when I say... I come from Hades. <laughs> well, my father's plantations... John, do you know that my father is the richest man in the world? Oh? By far the richest? Well, I read about a man that paid taxes on a $5 million income. Small fry. If my father paid tax on his real income, he'd disrupt the whole economy of the United States. No kidding. I like rich people. And <laughs> the richer a fellow is, the better I like him. My father could buy out all the millionaires in the country and not even know he'd done it. Is that a fact? Well, I visited the Schlitzer Murphys once. They're plenty rich. 
Why, their daughter Vivian's got rubies as big as hen's eggs. And sapphires that glow like headlamps. I like jewels. Always have. I used to collect them instead of stamps. And diamonds. Well, the Schlitzer Murphys had diamonds as big as walnuts. Oh, that's nothing. Huh? Nothing at all. My father has a diamond as big as the Ritz. <laughs> oh, please, I'm not joking. But... You mean as big as the Ritz-Carlton Hotel? Exactly. My father has a diamond as big as the Ritz. Well, from there on, it was something like a dream. We got off the train about dusk at a little whistle stop called Fish, Montana. <laughs> there wasn't anything there, not even a station. Just a broken-down old buggy and four or five sheep herders lounging beside the track and... I suppose, wondering who we were. Anyway, Percy and I climbed into the buggy, and without saying a word, the driver cracked his whip, and off we went. I don't know how far we traveled. We didn't seem to be following any road. After an hour or so, it got dark, but the driver kept right on, never saying a word. I hope you'll pardon this inconvenience, John. But we have to take certain precautions, you know. Oh, that's all right. Anyway, we're almost there. Your home, you mean? Oh, no, to the place where we consider it safe to transfer. Transfer? What do you mean? There's the signal now. Headlights. Pull up the horse, Absom. Here we are. An automobile. But how... Well, there's no road. Oh, this car's specially built. Doesn't need roads. Welcome home, master. Good evening, Gigsum. Oh, come on, John. Let's get in. <laughs> what? The, that door opened by itself. Sonically controlled, you know. Gosh. Hey, what's this car made out of? Silver? No, platinum. And those are emeralds in the hubcaps. And the upholstery. It's fur. Mink. You're ready, master. Anytime, Gigsum. You've probably noticed the exceptional brightness of the headlights. The lenses are cut from diamonds. Boy, what a car. And this old junk heap. We use it for a station wagon. Well, what are we stopping for? This is just a deserted canyon. Oh, we're not there yet, John. It's a little further. Wait, you'll see. Percy, what's that? That noise. They're sending the hooks down. Hooks? Yes, to attach to the wheels. You know, that's what Gigsum is doing now. But, oh, oh yes, I forgot to mention. Gigsum will look after you during the visit. Look after me? Your personal valet. Of course, there'll be other slaves available, too, whenever you need them. Do you have a lot of slaves? Oh, three or four hundred, I suppose. Oh, already, Gigsum? Yes, master. We're leaving the ground. Yes, there's a hoist up there on top of the cliff. Has cables about a quarter of a mile long. But what for? Oh, it's the only way in. <laughs> Imagine. Hoisting an automobile a quarter of a mile up the side of a cliff. It's nothing, really. 
As you may have guessed, John, this is not going to be like anything you ever saw before in your life. Well, John, there it is. That's your home? Oh, it's magnificent. Palatial. It's not a bad little place. How big is it? I suppose you mean the number of rooms. I think it's around 140. But Father may remember exactly. Then, of course, there are other buildings. Slaves' quarters and things. Why hasn't anybody ever found out about it? This place, I mean. Well, for one thing, it's the only five square miles in the United States that have never been surveyed. Huh? Why not? Oh, things were arranged. I don't see how that's possible. Believe me, it hasn't been easy. I understand Grandfather had to bribe three government bureaus, a vice president, and half of Congress once to keep this place off of the maps. Oh, but surely somebody stumbled onto it. Uh, prospectors, people like that? Oh, yes, that happens occasionally. Then, of course, we have to arrange things. You mean... Not always. Usually we just take them prisoner and keep them. Same as the aviators. Oh, planes come here? Well, once in a while they fly over. Of course, they never get away. We have nine anti-aircraft batteries around the hill here. You... You shoot them down? Oh, yes, great sport. It does upset Mother a bit, though. And there's always a chance that one might get away. That's Father's greatest worry. Well, this place... This whole thing, it's... It's fantastic. Oh, come now, John. I picked you for a fellow with his feet on the ground. And you haven't seen anything yet, you know. This is only the beginning. And it was only the beginning. We crossed the acres of lawn and entered the great chateau. And from that moment on, vision upon vision, tumbled together in a gigantic kaleidoscope of color, symmetry, and exquisite harmony. But there were corridors lined with gleaming crystals, lit by lamps cut from emerald. And there were great halls carpeted with chinchilla fur and ermine, and some with floors of clear transparency, flaming in the shifting glow of a myriad-colored fire beneath them. And there was a white-haired man, pink-faced and pleasant, who was Percy's father, and a lovely lady with dark hair piled high on her head like a fragile queen who was Percy's mother. Soft music came from hidden places. Perfumes filled the air. Exotic foods and wines more rare than pearls. And finally, sitting in my chair in the great banquet hall, I quietly fell asleep. I thought there could be no more nor greater wonders. I was wrong. There were many more and greater ones. And one of them I discovered the next morning in the garden. Miss Kismine. You're John Unger and you're a friend of my brother. Are you from the East? Uh, no. Well, at least not exactly. I'm from Hades. 
Oh. Missouri. Would you like to sit down here on the grass? Well, yeah, sure I would. I'm going east to school this fall. Do you suppose I'll like it? I think so. Of course, it'll be different from all this. Well, that's what Jasmine says. And she's in the east now. I've never been outside. Who's Jasmine? My sister. She's older than I am. I hope you won't be offended, but... Well, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Yes, I know. What? <laughs> I surprised you, didn't I? A year ago, I would have said thank you. But Father says it's very necessary to learn to take things for granted. So now I just take it for granted that I'm beautiful, you see? You're pretty sophisticated, aren't you? Oh, I'm not at all. I think sophisticated young people are terribly common. I'm not a bit like that. Oh, I didn't really mean it. I only said it to tease you. Well, I'm glad. I wouldn't want you to think anything like that. Why, I don't smoke or drink even. And I never read a thing except poetry. I was only kidding. Well, I believe girls should enjoy their youth in a wholesome sort of way. Oh, so do I. I like you, John. I wish you'd spend some of your time with me this summer. Not all with Percy. Oh, I will kiss mine. I will. You may be in love with me if you'd like to. I'm absolutely fresh ground, you know. I am in love with you. But of course we'll have to meet secretly. My parents wouldn't permit it if they knew. Well, then that's what we'll do. Well, I have to go now. I'm supposed to be with Mother at 11. Uh, aren't you going to ask me for a kiss? Jasmine says boys always do nowadays. Well, some of them do. But not me. We don't expect nice girls to do that sort of thing in Hades. It was a funny thing. Percy's family were polite, friendly, always smiling. And yet all the time I had a feeling that some terrible and golden mystery lay hidden just around the corner. A few days after I'd met Kismine, Percy remarked casually that an unusual event had occurred. A man had escaped from the cage. I didn't know what he meant then. But the next morning I was walking with Percy's father on the grounds of the estate. The slaves' quarters are there, Mr. Angan. Oh, Yes, they're very nice. Well, they're adequate. During one period of my youth, I became absurdly idealistic and allowed them to live in luxury. I even equipped their rooms with tile baths. <laughs> I suppose they used the bathtubs to keep coal in. Mr. Schlitzer Murphy told I me I should one... imagine the opinions of Mr. Schlitzer Murphy are of little importance. They did not use the tubs for coal. They bathed in them. Unfortunately, several caught cold and died. So, of course, I had the baths removed. Shall we move on? Mr. Washington, Percy said something about a man escaping from the cage. I didn't quite get it. The cage, eh? Well, perhaps you'd like to see it. It might prove interesting just as a novelty. It's over here. These trees. Hey, they're 60 feet tall, and, and they have roses blooming all over them. Rather interesting development by a Swiss botanist. They're the only ones in the world. I'll be darned. No, I suppose you'll see them all over the country in a few years, huh? No. No, these are the only ones that was arranged. Well, here we are. The cage. It's a pit dug in the ground. And a grating on top. Oh, yes, it's not really a cage, except in uh, a certain sense. Well, boys, how are you getting along? Uh, come on down here, sir! 
How many men are down there? About 50, as I recall. Who are they? Oh, aviators we've shot down, wandering prospectors, men of that sort. Yes, but why are they kept there? They've all had the common misfortune of having discovered El Dorado. Gentlemen, I'm sure you'd like to know that your companion who departed without my permission has been taken care of. He was shot... He was shot by some of my agents in 14 different places. Golf, Mr. Unger? They found him then? The man who got away? Those places were towns. My agents were over eager. None of them could offer a positive identification. I'm afraid the man may still be at large. So you see, it's not all utopia here. We do have our difficulties. <laughs> Isn't it a little unnecessary, holding them like that? Well, not at all. It's the only way to keep this place hidden. Yes, I guess that must be important. Uh, Percy was telling me something on the train. I thought he was just kidding. But he said you had a diamond as big as the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. As a matter of fact, it's much bigger than the Ritz. Much bigger. <laughs> Well, summer went on, and I was more and more in love with Kismine. Oh, she was priceless, exquisite, like no other girl in the world. After a couple of weeks, I kissed her, of course, and I was really in love for the first time. Oh, I should have known. I should have put two and two together when Percy's father showed me the cage. But I didn't until one morning late in the summer, I'd slipped off with Kismine to the Rose Garden. Kiss mine. I think we ought to elope. Oh, I don't know. It would be much nicer to be married here. But then it would be more romantic to elope. Yeah. All the Sunday supplements would write stories about fabulous heiress elopes with... You are fabulous, you know. I knew an heiress from Omaha once. I don't think you'd like her. She visited my sister here. Oh, you've had other guests then, huh? Well, yes, we've had a few... Wasn't your father ever afraid they might talk outside? Mm, to some extent. Or let's talk about something pleasanter. What's so unpleasant about it? Well, I grew quite fond of some of them. You mean they told and your father... Oh, they didn't get a chance to. Father had to be sure. Oh, but... Well, that's murder. What else could we do? In the cage, well, they'd have been a constant reproach to us. And Father does it so nicely. They're always drugged in their sleep, and then we tell their families they died of scarlet fever in Butte. I'm not sure how that affects the statistics there. Of all the horrible... Oh, it is not. After all, it would be terribly boring here without ever having anybody. Why, Father and Mother have sacrificed some of their best friends. Well, you're no better than the... Well, then, that's what they plan to do with me. Oh, couldn't you forget it? And be nice to me until you're put away. It's only for two or three weeks. You'd go on this way, kissing, talking about love, when you know I'm not much better than a corpse? You're not a corpse. You're not. I won't have you saying I kissed a corpse. Oh, that wasn't what I said. You did, too. I did not. You said Just that... Just a moment. 
spot. Who kissed a corpse? Well, nobody. We were joking. You two haven't any business here anyway. Kiss mine. Uh, go read. Go play golf. Don't let me find you here when I come back. Yes, Father. Good day, children. You see? Now he knows. You've spoiled everything. You don't really love me. Kiss mine. You... Look, tell me. What's the reason for all this secrecy? What if you are rich and have this place? Why would it be so terrible if anybody found out about it? Why, it's on account of the diamond, of course. Diamond? What is this diamond all of you talk about? Well, it's the... Oh, you'd better ask Percy. I'm always getting things mixed up. Well, I will ask him. And another thing, I'm getting out of here tonight if I have to dig through the mountains. I'm going back east. Take me with you. No. Why not? His mind, dear, your father wouldn't permit it. If you won't take me... I'll go tell him I want to marry you. No, you can't do that. He bumped me off this afternoon. Oh, please take me, darling. We'll be terribly poor and very happy. And I'll cook things for you. Oh, herbs and berries and things. Won't that be fun? You will, won't you, John? Well, my head was really in a whirl. This whole thing was fantastic. And so was the family, even Kismine. I couldn't think of anything to do, but... Well, I rushed to see Percy. But, John, why didn't you ask me before? Because I thought you were kidding all the time. <laughs> I know you wouldn't have believed me if I told you. Yeah, well, I'm ready to believe anything now. Well, it was Grandfather who started the whole thing. Purely by accident. He came out here from Virginia after the war between the states and stumbled onto it. Onto what? The diamond. That's what made this all possible, of course. Grandfather spent two years going around to different cities of the world selling bits of it. Then he started building this place. He put his money in jewels. But Father found that radium took much less space. Yeah, but why the secrecy? Oh, it just wouldn't do if anyone found out. Ruin the economy of the world. The thing's too big. And this has been going on for three generations, then. The cage and, and this thing of inviting friends? Oh, yes. You see, there wasn't really any danger before airplanes. They are what worry us. You knew when you invited me here what would happen. Please, John. I thought you'd be more sensible about it. After all, you can see my position. Oh, yeah. Well, where is it? Where do you keep this diamond that's caused so cockeyed much trouble? Oh, I thought you'd guessed. You've noticed the hill the chateau stands on. Yes. It contains a cubic mile. And, except for a thin covering of dirt, it's one big, solid diamond. It was nearly midnight. I don't know what woke me, but... All of a sudden, I was staring across the patches of moonlight spotting the ermine carpet of my bedroom. Staring at three slaves I'd never seen before. They just slipped inside the door and stood there, each with a vicious length of shiny copper wire. The official executioners. I lay there on the bed watching them, counting heartbeats, not daring to move, not daring not to move. They didn't know I'd wakened, and they began edging across the room. Come on, all three of you. There's no time now for this. All hell's broken loose. Hurry! I took one long, deep breath, 
the first one in several moments. And then I was out of the bed in an instant, throwing on my clothes and dashing through the long crystal corridor to Kismine's room. Kismine, are you awake? John, over here by the window. So they woke you up, too. If you mean three of your father's slaves. Oh, no, airplanes. Airplanes? So that's what it is. At least a dozen. I saw them crossing against the moon. Oh, look, they're circling way over there. You think they're here on purpose? Oh, yes. They dropped warnings to father. It's that man who got away from the cage, you know. Oh, good for him. Yes, wasn't he clever? Well, I think we'll open up on them any second now. Open up? Yes, our anti-aircraft. Oh, this is going to be thrilling. Thrilling? Oh, look, they're in range now. Bravo! Bravo! Get away from that window! Did you see that? Yes, and we've got to get out of here. Can't you understand? They'll bomb the chateau next. I know. There's a little grove across from the side of the mountain. We always keep one of the cars there. Oh, we have a nice view of everything. A nice view? Kiss mine, you don't seem to understand. They mean business. They're out to finish off you and your whole family. Oh, but it all seems so silly. Oh, when you come right down to it, they've never even met us. What time is it, John? Is it morning yet? I don't know. I've lost my watch. Seems to be getting lighter, all right. It's quieter, too. Well, they've knocked out your father's guns. Every last one of them. Won't be long now. Oh, it seems such a shame. The family put so much work on the place. Everything's always been so pleasant. Yeah. Well, you better get some sleep, Kismine. I'm going to walk down the path a little ways. Oh, you'll come back. Yes, Kismire. I'll come back. At the edge of the wood, I stopped and looked out across the valley toward the wrecked chateau standing on its diamond hill in the center. The bombing had stopped. The planes droned over the far rim of the plateau, seeking some sort of formation. Then on a little knoll just below me, three men appeared suddenly from the underbrush. The first one strode imperiously ahead, and the other two bore a heavy burden between them. It was Mr. Washington and two of the slaves. I stepped behind a rock and stood motionless, watching them. All right. This is far enough. We stop here. Now, hoist it up. Hold it there. Both together. Easy now. There. The burden they held up to the heavens was an immense diamond, cut and polished, catching the first faint rays of the dawn and gleaming like a fragment of the morning star. Now... You out there. You there. I could see no one else anywhere in view. You above there. I want you to understand. This is only a sample. I'll give you a thousand. Cut as fine. Set in pedestals of platinum. And I'll build you a temple. A thousand feet high. Cast of solid gold. And on the top of it, I'll put one diamond a hundred feet across, set there forever to catch the rays of your sun. A thought began to dawn on me. I couldn't believe it. I'll letter your name on the temple in emeralds, and I'll see that the whole world worships at its base. All you have to do is make everything the way it was before. Mr. Washington was offering a bribe to God.
He stopped talking and the three of them stood there looking up at the heavens, waiting for an answer. And then at the far end of the valley, out of those same silent heavens, blossomed the white puffs of parachutes. The man who tried to bribe God looked up and saw them, became old in an instant, and turning with lowered head, walked down the path toward the chateau. With sudden premonition, I whirled and headed for the spot where I'd left his mine. His mine and the car that needed no roads. Haven't we gone far enough, John? I suppose. We're ten miles from the chateau. Well, it's all so hectic. This rushing about and losing sleep and everything. Hand me those field glasses. Here they are. Well, can you see anything? No. Wait. Hmm. What is it? It's your father and mother. And Percy. Yes, and the two slaves still carrying that big diamond. Oh, wait. They're going in a tunnel down below the chateau. So that's it. They've got an underground escape. No, I remember now. The mountain's wired. Some kind of atom bomb. Atom? Atomic bomb? Oh, that's it. Father's had it for years. He always said it would disintegrate the whole works, diamond and all. Of course, he only regarded it as a last resort. So he'd rather have it like that. Well, they're all inside the tunnel now. The troopers are moving in. I don't suppose there's really anything to be done about it now. And there wasn't. I keep thinking about things the way they were. It was all so pleasant. Oh, I don't suppose it will be ever exactly like that again. Not ever, Kismine. And maybe it never was. Youth's a time for dreaming. And dreams die, too. I'll probably have to take in washing. But, of course, we'll be very happy. What will we do, John? Do? Oh, we can love a while underneath the stars. <laughs> That's a form of divine drunkenness we can all try. And then there may be other diamonds in the world... Who knows? And even though it's a shabby gift, there's always disillusion. Turn up your collar, Kismine, before you catch pneumonia. Let's go to sleep. Diamond as Big as the Ritz by F. Scott Fitzgerald was adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield and produced and directed by William N. Robeson with Jack Edwards Jr. as John, Danny Merrill as Percy, and Linda Mason as Kismine. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Escape is presented by the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations each week at this time. Next week, we invite you to escape to the China Seas with Joseph Conrad in his gripping story of a typhoon. And so, good night until next week at this time, when it will again be time to escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was Diamond as Big as the Ritz from Escape. Here on The Secrets of the Mysterious Old Radio, a monthly members-only podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And I will start by saying from our introduction, you can rest assured that there isn't enough curiosity in the world to make me listen to the Jimmy Buffett song. (laughs) 
<laughs> that uh, he wrote for this. I, nope, not doing it. You that will not it? be wasting away in Margaritaville. <sighs> I'm including it on the end of this podcast, <laughs> just so you never go back and listen to it. <laughs> well, We're going to auto-tune your voice to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> we are, the three of us, extremely familiar with this show. We've performed it... Twice, about to perform it a third time, we I believe. We performed it more than twice. Have we? I think we performed it three times. So fourth mm-hmm. time coming up yep. here in 2021. Uh, we have another gig where someone wants this. And so it's an interesting thing to discuss because we've discussed this through the rehearsal process and really analyzed this script so this is going to be an interesting discussion based on the fact that most of our discussions are, here, listen to this, don't say anything, let's see what everybody thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in case anyone's wondering, why do they do this script so many times? Uh, because I can't let it go. We're in the Twin Cities, and F. Scott Fitzgerald is from St. Paul, so sometimes people want local authors' work, so sometimes we do that. Yep. And who's the other uh, cat we found that, uh, which is tail? Alonzo Dean Cole. Alonzo Dean Cole from St. Paul, so... Other than that, that's all we do. Alonzo Dean Cole (laughs) and this one adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald. I will say that I understand that this is not a face value story. This is nothing but social commentary and satire. It's not about the actual plot, so to speak, as much as it is uh, commentary. It's not intended to be naturalistic. Yeah. And failing miserably at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a comedy. It is. I was excited to listen to this again in the context of discussing it around the old podcast table here, as opposed to rehearsal, because the, listening to it in that context reminded me so much of Evening Primrose. Hmm. It's almost beat for beat identical in structure to Evening Primrose. Part of what fascinates me about both of those stories and relates to your response, Eric, is the characters are pure vehicles of satire. And I was trying to think of what's a modern parallel. And the only thing I could think of, which isn't even that modern because I'm super old, is Christopher Durang. Mm -hmm. That level of absurdist satire, straight-faced. I think that the thing that always catches me every time I listen to this and every time we perform it or I have to think about it is that if you took away the deeper social commentary, there's a cool story waiting mm-hmm. here. There's a bunch of land that no one knows about, and there's secret things going on there. <laughs> and there's a secret place where secret things happen, and horrible, evil people need to be taken down. Like there's a, a Ming the Merciless kind of storyline that, <laughs> that could pop out of this. But the thing that always hangs me up is that, again, and I've said this before in this podcast, is that I get to this point of... Gosh, I hope I'm smart enough to be catching all of it. Like I, I hope you I'm... need to work on your self-esteem, Eric. Because <laughs> right. a, you're smart. B, this is not uh, deep. This is not subtle. As in, right. it is. That's what's we... the charm of it to me is that it's Fitzgerald simple. is just like I'm going to be just as over the top and obvious all right. as possible. I'm going to be as indulgent as I can, as he, as I said in the intro, just to amuse myself. And I don't disagree with that. That that's the intent. I'm talking about my own issues with, uh, I hope I'm catching all of it. And it comes from literature professors in college telling me, Ugh. <laughs> you know. It's so obvious, so, Mr. Uh, Webster. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Getting that, well, what does the dance in this story represent? What is the dance is a metaphor? And I'm going, maybe they just had a dance. <laughs> <laughs> so you just 
hear F. Scott Fitzgerald and are immediately returned to a college literature class and you're frightened. Yes. I got the great Gatsby so wrong, I almost failed the class because I rewrote in my paper pretty much the plot instead of, well, well, you know, Zelda is representative of the uh, man versus uh, nature. Uh, I don't know, making stuff up. But I'll tell you this, there's not a college professor who ever wants you to recap the plot. That's not a... No, I know. (laughs) I know. Something you're supposed to do. I mean, that would be a fun class of, why is this book awesome? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's... But see, why can't a book just be a story about a guy who had all this land and shot at airplanes? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, well, but you're, trying... you're right now the guy who is like, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Get your chocolate out of my peanut butter. I just want some peanut butter. That being said, the satire part of this is very fun. It's so crazy over the top. And I think my favorite is the guy uh, that brings him there. And I forget his name right now. The Percy. Percy, yes. <laughs> oh, my father. My father is the richest man in the world. Mm. He is Thurston Howell told yep. him to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> and did you recognize... Uh, the shadow as uh, the father uh, that is William Johnstone William Johnstone yep. uh, I didn't every time that we do this or talk about this uh, it is brought up to me oh it's William Johnstone <laughs> yeah. and I hear I listened to it again about a couple hours ago and before this and uh, until right now you know I don't recognize him <laughs> it doesn't sound like him at all which is great he's Good a job. great actor I yeah and I've said this before I, I like him as the shadow before we started this podcast he was my favorite shadow until I realized no no Orson Welles is the best and I was wrong they can both have a place in your heart yeah well John Stone's problem wasn't him uh, the writing changed yes. in the shadow <laughs> the intent changed but we're not talking about the shadow I was but can we <laughs> <laughs> I was fascinated to listen to Percy in a context that's different than like how can I make this my voice sound like this voice in that he is just motivated by pure disdain. Mm-hmm. It's uh, fascinating. Like, he's just incapable of actually enjoying any of these things. All he enjoys is watching other people encounter them. But my favorite part of this whole script is Kismine. Yes. Who is just nuts. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> if the listeners are curious, because you brought up a good point, I usually play the father. Mm-hmm. And you, Joshua, play the main character, right? I played two roles. Tim and I have swapped uh, over some performances. I've played Percy before and the narrator, and Tim has played both characters. But yeah, you are usually the uh, overbearing rich father. And the guy's in the hole. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You are here! We're in a hole! (laughs) Give us our bathtubs back! (laughs) Vote Bernie Sanders! (laughs) And Tim plays Kismine. Yes. um, Now, Kismine is, she's nuttier than nuts, but again, it's so over the top. She has some of the best lines when she says, Oh, Father always says uh, to the families that they died of scarlet fever and beauty. I don't know how that affects the statistics there. <laughs> that is one of the greatest lines. I wonder how that affects the statistics there. In two weeks, I am driving my kid to college to Montana State. And uh, uh, it never uh, had kind of a connection to me before when they were talking about Montana. So I, uh, I'm going to make her listen to this on the drive out there. <laughs> and she'll go, uh, what is this? 
<laughs> so that she knows if you get invited to a large palatial manor, invite do- us. We want to go. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I like a lot about Diamond as Big as the Ritz, and it's also true of Evening Primrose, is as absurd as the characters are, as satirical as the writing is, the threats and the danger are really extreme. And they aren't played for laughs, uh, even though the characters who are threatening the protagonist with these terrible acts are doing it in a satirical manner. They're being threatened with terrible things, and the characters are doing terrible things things Mm -hmm. and i think that's where these to me as radio dramas come to life is that incongruity between the stakes and the tone Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah i will say that my favorite moment production wise story wise deeper meaning wise the whole thing is when he's trying to buy god it's just a fascinating and really cool scene in a certain way that he is so removed and so oblivious and so overcome with power that he's just bribing God. Yeah, the self-delusion there is amazing. And that's really the climax of the story. Everything after that is denouement. Well, and to put on my good lit student glasses, that's also, watching it through John's eyes, that's John's turning point of Right. All right, I'm taking your daughter and I'm leaving. Yeah, you're you're nutty. (laughs) There's not a shred of sanity anywhere to be found. (laughs) The fact that he knew absolutely they had to kill him wasn't enough for him to go. I know. (laughs) It was, you guys are bribing God. Now I got to get out of (laughs) here. It's still in me a little bit of like, and he's from Hades, so he's from the lowest point of the low and in the underworld, and he goes up to this mountaintop, and this is all the stuff that I know Eric is like, oh, I didn't want to, I don't want to even know this. Uh, but it was also struck that he specifically said he's from a plantation in Missouri, and this is like, oh, is this maybe one generation, two generations after emancipation? Mm-hmm. But I think he's making a connection between oh, right. yeah. between where some of this great wealth came from and then there are these this secret world in which they are still utilizing slaves. It was a weird choice, uh, and I, I read the short story so long ago, I don't remember how it's presented in the short story, but the slave, I don't know what ethnicity he's intended to be, if he speaks in broken English because he's just broken. <laughs> like, right. like literally, but he—that's a ballet. Montana accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lower Bozeman. <laughs> Either it's something that is lost on a modern ear, or some ignorance on my part. But I, I wasn't sure satirically what they were going for there. <laughs> Can you do a Scottish accent? Sure. <laughs> All right, whatever that was, it's fine. <laughs> to your point, Tim, that is what happens to me. Like, oh, he's from Hades. That means something. <laughs> I don't know what it means. Like, because uh, Hades is hell, so he's representing. So the rest of the country's hell. And, so, and then and you see what I'm saying? And then I yes. and then I don't enjoy the story because I'm like, I'm too dumb to understand what Hades is supposed to represent. And I know that it represents something. Eric, it's not a test. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. It feels like a test. <laughs> it's there for your pleasure should you decide to. <laughs> pull it out of there and it may or may not have been intended by the author and so if I, you don't I, want to I definitely like going in and finding things like this clearly was not intended to be anything <laughs> right. I am 
definitely <laughs> propping this up with my own effort. Yeah. Uh, but the Hades jokes are great in there. Yes. <laughs> when she asks him to kiss her and he's like, oh, nice girls don't do that in Hades. <laughs> and he just hits that line so hard. <laughs> it's so arch is fun. <laughs> was also try- so her, she's kiss mine. Her sister, older sister, was Jasmine. Jasmine. Mm-hmm. Is this just a series of kids alphabetically named like Asmine, Mine, C Mine, D Mine? It's interesting that mine and they are mining. Yes. See, maybe and possessive. That's... You, you're good at this. D plus. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, I'm sorry. I said it wasn't a test. <laughs> <laughs> you are triggering me. It is. <laughs> I did my uh, entire Work thesis. Work harder, think better. Right. <laughs> I wrote an entire paper comparing Lord of the Fries to Gilligan's Island and failed. And because I thought I, had, I was on to something. And then I was like, this is brilliant. They're going to love it. I, you know, remember uh, Ralphie? Oh, I'm going to get this A plus. And he gets that C minus and he's so proud of his essay. That's me. That's college for me. I think that's a solid premise. It was. It was cool. You know what he wrote on there? You watch too much TV, gave me a D. That's all he wrote. Wow. And I was like, I was comparing Ralphie to Gilligan and like. <laughs> you could be a media studies professor right now if he had just sure. given you a little encouragement. It's when you went to school, because now you would get an A for that. It would be brilliant hot take, Webster. <laughs> <laughs> I just said Ralphie. Uh, uh, it, it was Piggy, but now I want Ralphie from Christmas Story to be in Lord of the Flies. <laughs> and I'm going to write that. Nice. <laughs> A plus. <laughs> You'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> well, it, every time we listen to it, here's a question for the two of you. Does it get better? Does it get mundane? Does it get, is it nothing after a while to you? Do you discover things? How does it feel listening to it for the fifth time? I particularly enjoyed it, like I said, not having a job to do at the end of it. Um, just right. for listening to for for pleasure's sake, and like I said, that there's so few stories that are told in this style anymore. At least that I can think of. I'm sure listeners would be like, uh, obviously, right. D plus for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would compare these to some of the more satirical installments of genre shows from the 90s and early 2000s like X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Again, where the stakes are real and it exists within the continuity of the dramatic world, but everyone behaves a little more over the top. X-Files, yeah. I'm thinking like Mm -hmm. the one that started all was Jose Chung's From Outer Space, Mm -hmm. the one with Charles Nelson Reilly. Uh, Jesse Ventura was in that's that episode, right. and yeah, oh, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember and Charles Alex Trebek has a blink and you miss him cameo in it as well. So it's it's just a weird, bizarre comedy episode of X Files, but there's something dark behind it all. So yeah, it reminds me of this kind of stuff. So I made that comparison for you, Tim. Thank you. I am the listener who's like, oh, Tim, <laughs> you're wrong. But no, uh, I don't think it's done a lot anymore. I, I think that was a, a trend that yeah. has vanished. I uh, took some time this time, uh, and I'm going to do an exact, and I mean this, uh, impression of the father, William Johnstone. I've got him <laughs> down. I'm going to do it exactly like that. So. so we are totally multitasking with this episode of the <laughs> Don't ask me to do it now. Do it now. 
<laughs> I'm more curious about this Lord of the Flies, Gilligan's Island. If I, I still have that somewhere, I'll send it to you. I also wrote a paper about Sir Thomas Aquinas that got an F. Uh, he had a theory, a philosophical theory, that in order to row across a lake, you had to get halfway across. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then quarter, eighth, whatever. And so eventually you don't go anywhere, and therefore uh, motion doesn't exist. That was his theory. Prove yeah, that came up in our discussion of death and the compass. Did it? Uh, prove or disprove this theory. I'll be honest, I'd had enough of college at that point. And I said, I don't know, hold him by his ankles over a cliff and ask him if he still believes it. <laughs> the pragmatist. I still think I should have gotten an A for that. Because <laughs> simple to the point, there you go. But she goes back on his thinking. At least a D. <laughs> a right. D for effort. A D for deffort. <laughs> a D for making you smile before you shake your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's time for some Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> Big mile of perfection, treasure no one has known. One man came upon this mother load, built himself a thousand room chateau. He's the emperor of diamonds, master of the prize. He's got the hold on happiness and all the money can buy. Every day he lives in fascination. This is not an everyday temptation Oh, it's the diamond as big as the Ritz What you gonna do with this? Tell me who's going to save you When you're a slave to the diamond As big as the Ritz Oh, it's as terrible as I thought it would be. 